Who in the world thought one day at Lake Avenue Church you will hear a testimony in Chinese and a song in Swahili and an Indian pastor gets up to speak in Hindi? <laughs> I just want to take a, a, a brief moment to pause and uh, say a big thank you to our worship leader, uh, Jeremy Rose. Um, you know, many people who attend the church for a, uh, recently, they all ask, what is this shepherd's class? You know, because every week we talk about shepherd's class as they are, you know, people who don't know about them think that they are some kind of celebrities, right? And they are, they are celebrities. And they are the only class who are allowed to go anywhere, everywhere, talk to anybody and everybody. And we treat them as celebrities because we think they are celebrities in the eyes of God. And I just wanted to know. The Los Corda family, of course, lead that um, session, and there are many people, but Jeremy's heart for them and the way that baptism happened. Um, makes me very proud to be a pastor here. I just wanted to know that. Anyway, <laughs> um, 12 weeks ago, we started this long and arduous journey of traveling with the Israelites uh, through the desert. Um, it was uh, one of the longest series I have done, and I probably uh, we have done here at Lake Avenue too. Uh, but today, we are coming to the, the series finale, and we are coming to the very end of, of this journey. And uh, I also want to pause and thank uh, Dr. Jeff Leo for carrying on this journey last week when I was not here. Uh, and I was hearing it from Las Vegas, <laughs> but I was doing some time of meditation and contemplation. Uh, and uh, as I was uh, hearing, and I was so encouraged, uh, by the message, and I want that message to hang on our head, what he said. What do we want to inherit from this place? That's a big question. And I just want to twist it. Uh, you know, he was basically talking to the young adults and the young people at the time. I want to twist that question back to not so young people like us, uh, and to what do we, we, we want to leave for our children? right, uh, in the next generation. What is the inheritance we want to leave for our children? So I'm so grateful that again, not only in the pastoral staff, even in our PU, people who are uh, given wisdom and who could teach us and preach, and, uh, and I believe the, the every word out of his mouth, thank you, Dr. Jeff Leo, uh, every word out of his mouth to me was marinated with theological insight and practical wisdom, uh, and I was encouraged by everything he said, except one thing, though. I knew, I knew I couldn't completely trust this academic theologian's type. I think he was, he was poking fun at the, this big pipe organ here, right? I think he was, I think he was. And I've told this very clearly to everybody, don't touch the pipe organ. It comes from Canada, okay? <laughs> <laughs> It comes from the very place you have Celine Dion, Michael Bublé, Justin Bieber, and of course, Matthew John too, right? So don't touch the pipe organ. I just want you to know that. So today, we are going to read uh, from 
Deuteronomy, uh, this is the final, final uh, verses of, uh, of Pentateuch or Torah, as the Israelites would call. So these are the final concluding verses of the fifth book of the Torah. Uh, so Deuteronomy, uh, would you stand with me for, uh, for the reading of the word? Chapter 34, verses 5 to 12. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, which is often pronounced Nun in, in Hebrew, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hand, hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And I'm also going to read a passage from the New Testament. This comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is the word of the Lord. So in this journey, as we saw, towards the promised land, just to refresh your memory, I'm going to put that map one more time. So they traveled all the way from the Nile Delta of the e Egypt, a city somewhere called Ramesses, the area is called Goshen. And they traveled all the way south. You can see the Red Sea crossing there. It's a small bit of that Red Sea. And then they came to Mount Horeb where the, or Sinai, also called Sinai, where the uh, commandments were given. Then they traveled all the way north, that black dotted lines, right? Like you know, all the way to Kadesh Barnea, which was the entry point to Canaan. But that's where the whole mishap happened, if you remember the sermon. And that's where they made a wrong decision, or other words, we will say, the minority opinion was overruled by the majority decision, and that proved to be detrimental in their journey. So funny enough, that dark line, the, the black line, is around two years' worth of journey all the way to Kadesh Barnea. 
And then they traveled that red line from there, from that place, Kadesh Barnea. Now they are going all the way up to, you know, you see Dead Sea, and on top of Dead Sea is the River Jordan. And the moment they cross River Jordan, they are at the Promised Land, right? So that red dotted line and the red line actually, you know, amount to 38 years of their journey. You look at the irony of it. That, that black line all the way, it took two years. But in the next 30 years, 38 years, they were doing nothing but wandering. Nothing but wandering. In that 30 years, you can take that map away. In that 30 years, all that happened was a generation died and they disappeared. And then a new generation emerged, a new 600,000 people emerged out of this. And now they are ready, and this new generation is ready to take over the land. They have heard stories from their parents, and they know why they are traveling. And at this point, they are going to cross Jordan and inherit the promised land. And that's where we are. And then this happens. And the Exodus story, in, in so many ways, is very un, anti-climatic because it is not just the story of Israelites. In so many ways, the story, it is also the story of Moses. It's a story where the, the protagonist doesn't make it to the final scene. Isn't it sad in a way? It is almost like a Shakespearean tragedy. Here is Moses who didn't want to do anything and he was called with the vision of the burning bush and assigned this task and he was leading these people all the way through almost 40 years at the very end of it it's all about crossing this line and then God said no this is the end for you it's almost <laughs> scary <laughs> it's almost scary when that kind of things happen there are different theories of why it happens why it is but I thought it is really mean to write a story like that and this poor Moses he should have allowed to enter the promised land after all he was the leader right now let me let me take you to a completely different story to expound this you know this is this is something bothers me as a leader because I don't want to be that leader take people to to a place but then I'm not going there I will let you go but God will say no this is done and you see this in many many uh, Christian settings right like the leaders get lost at the end now let me take you to almost 500 years later um, maybe a little more uh, here is David and we all know David David's story is not to be not necessarily to be told again and again but David had this David had everything right like David had everything and the power, the prestige, the, the anointing, all of this. And there is this one thing he deeply desired. If you study the story of David, he was so obsessed with building a temple for the Lord. He was just obsessed with that. He dreamed about that. I want to build a temple for the Lord. When, when David consolidated his power, when he became the king first he became the king of Judea then he annexed the whole of Israel and then eventually other kingdoms and he had he had he had rest and he became a prosperous stable king 
And the first thing he was thinking about, he was bothered by the fact that he built all these amazing palaces for him and his wives and his children and everything he had. But the Ark of the Lord, you remember the Ark of the Covenant, which is still in a tent in somebody's house. And he couldn't stand the thought, and I live in a palace, and I can't believe that I'm letting the, letting the Ark of the Covenant sit in some temp tent. I want to build a temple for the Lord. And he was so obsessed with that. And this is the verse, actually. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And if you really read further, God didn't really care. God says that, so what? I mean, that's not exactly what he says, what the Lord says, but say, I have always been in the tent. I have always moved with the people. It's actually, it's very interesting, that story. I mean, God didn't really initiate this idea of building a temple. It was all in David's heart because he was so fascinated by that idea of building the temple. And if you, re uh, if you read the chapter before that, you see David bringing the Ark of the Covenant all the way from this guy's house to Jerusalem and he is singing and dancing in front of this Ark of the Covenant and, and his wife was getting upset at him. Is this the way a king behaves? And you know, a king should not be this emotional and a king should not say, sing and dance like this because he was so excited to be in the presence of the Lord and bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and build this big temple for the Lord. It was uh, such an innocent heart, you know, uh, desire from David but God said no no I will not allow you to build a temple for me and as the story goes David gathered everything that you know need needed for the construction of the temple and eventually passed it on to Solomon and Solomon built the temple and it's kind of David without a temple is almost like like Da Vinci without Mona Lisa <laughs> it's almost like Steven Spielberg without Joss yeah he made Jurassic Park he made all of this but Joss can you imagine Steven Spielberg without Joss? That's the masterpiece that, that tickled the imagination of the whole wide world. And, and oh, that one thing that God didn't allow him to build. And it's almost as tragic as Moses going all the way up to the promised land, but God won't allow him to cross. Is God being mean? Why is a story written with such an anti-climatic way? Now that kind of brings us to the notion of what is the temple of God, in a way, right? It's, okay, let me read some verses here. I'll give some verses from where David is actually asking Solomon to build the temple. So this is, this is how the, this passage goes. First Chronicles chapter 28, 11 to 12 and then 19. This is what David says, okay? Listen to this. Then David gave his son Solomon 
the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord. And then he says, all this, David said, I have in writing as a result of the Lord's hand on me, and he enabled me to understand all the details of the plan. And what you're seeing here is David had actually built this temple in his mind. This temple, the plans which is the actual word is blueprint. The blueprint was already there. The spirit had already put this in his head, in his heart, in his soul. This temple was already built in his heart and he was living in the temple. And you know, there's a famous verse, Psalms 27, 4. This is what David sang. Psalms 27, 4. One thing I ask from the Lord. One thing, one thing. David has this one desire. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Which temple, David? <laughs> David's writings, whether it's Psalms or anything else you read, is so 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 painted with this picture of the temple a temple never existed except in his mind but here on the other side Solomon the wisest of the wisest he built this amazing temple according to the blueprint but he never really talked about the temple he was there on the day of inauguration that's all you don't see him at the temple like David was in a temple he never built but Solomon was in a temple, was never in a temple he built. He was obsessed with the Egyptian horses. He was building stables. And he was building harems for his wives. He had 1,000 wives and 700 of them official and 300 concubines. And he had no time to go to church. Of course. <laughs> Even with one spouse, some of us find it difficult, not me, but I'm just saying that it's difficult to go to church. And with thousand wives around you, and no wonder you have no time to think about the temple. Now here again, the irony is this, right? David was always in the temple he never built, but Solomon was never in the temple he built. So that makes us wonder, what is the temple of God anyway? And that's when you see the New Testament twisted. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And the Spirit of God lives in you. The blueprint, the actual building of the temple is right here inside us. So the temple of God See, if the temple of God was more than a physical building in God's eyes, I wonder if the promised land is more than just a geographical location. I'll say that one more time. If the temple of God was more than a physical location, is more than a physical building, 
then was the promised land actually something bigger than just a geographical location we call the Holy Land? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the story is not physical and Israel is the promised land. God was calling them to a physical place and all that true. But from the New Testament perspective, when we look at the idea of promised land itself, who was promised this land anyway? You know, where was the first promise started? Abraham, right? Abraham is the father. Abraham is the founder of the Jewish nation. He was the father. And he was promised the land, right? Remember the covenant of God to Abraham. Here, I am going to take you. I am going to call you to this land. I am going to give this land to your descendants in the future. But in Hebrews, there is this ironic twist. Hebrew chapter 11 verse 10 says, For he, Abraham, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose, whose architect and builder is God. See, New Testament twists the whole story of Exodus into a very different spiritual framework in which it is not a journey of just going from some people going from Egypt to Israel, which doesn't matter to most of us anyway. But the New Testament says there is a spiritual dimension to it, a spiritual foundation to it. Egypt represents the world and Israel represents the promised land or heaven and Jordan represents the uh, death and all these kind of things you know. And in which you see these archetypes. Passover lamb is Jesus and the rock that was following them from which they drank the water was Jesus. It's all New Testament puts in a very, very different perspective. Now that doesn't deny the fact that the promised land is given to the Jews and the geographical location matters. All that is true. But at the same time, if you don't see the spiritual dimension of it, we really miss the point and we get frustrated about what is happening around us. The idea of the promised land. And I remember Dr. Jeff Leo saying that I really appreciate what he said. Actually, this is what he said from Jeff's sermon. We are not here to maintain an empire of straw, but to usher in an imperishable kingdom. That's very exciting. We are not here to maintain an empire of straw, but to usher in an imperishable kingdom. The kingdom of God is the promised land. See, sometimes promise Promise never changes. God's promise never changes. But the land in which this promise is manifesting might change in so many different ways depending on where we are. I'll just give you an example. And, you know, we get, we get frustrated when things happen. For example, in our own country. And in my opinion, I believe America in so many ways is a promised land. That's what I believe. That's why I waited 10 years to get immigration into this country. I'm so grateful to be the, in this country. And I'm so grateful for the freedom in this country. I'm so grateful for the Judeo-Christian framework and foundation of this country. Having said that, having said that, when that is threatened and challenged, suddenly we go into a panic mode. What's happening? What's happening to God's promise? Nothing is happening to God's promise. 
Because God's promise is still very, very active. Because the promised land is the imperishable kingdom of God, the invisible kingdom of God, and the land may shift a little bit. That's kind of what you saw today. Actually, I'll show you a, a picture of a, a magazine. This is a magazine title of this week. This week, India Today is one of the most prestigious magazines in, in India. It is like the Time magazine of India. And you can see that red uh, uh, you know, border, right? That's a Time magazine kind of stuff. And this week, there is the, you know, the cover article. In India says, Pastors in Punjab. A new wave of charismatic Christian preachers draws large flocks of followers, making the Sikh and Hindu mainstream apprehensive. The foundations of the country is being shaken. You thought Christianity is dead and gone. Yeah, Pew Research says this. That research says this. God doesn't care. God doesn't read Pew Research because God's kingdom is not limited to a geographical location. Things are changing in India and China. And no wonder these are the countries that is fast-tracking to the prosperity right now. Now everybody wants to go to India and China now for business and everything. And God is out there too. See, what I'm saying is that sometimes we get so obsessed with our notion and associate everything physically connected to all this promise. And promise and promised land. It's, <laughs> it's funny, actually, many people are surprised when they talk to me. Uh, they, they often ask me, Pastor Matthew, how many times have you been to Holy Land? I've never been to Holy Land. <laughs> I've never been. <laughs> and actually, I became a Christian. Well, at least my, my calling to ministry started with the research I did between the intertestamental period, which is because I was obsessed with the with what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a 400 years of dark period between Old Testament and the New Testament. So I started studying the history of this and eventually drew me closer to the Bible and, and eventually I ended up here. So I remember that. The reason I'm saying is this, I am quite good at the, at the about talking about the context of New Testament period historically, geographically, and I do a lot of classes for people who go to Holy Land. Even just before COVID, St. Bede's Catholic Church invited me to a group of their, their people who were going to Holy Land. They invited me to do a class for them before going to Holy Land because I can talk authentically about the historical background, cultural background, uh, sociological background of the Holy Land, particularly during the New Testament period. And they actually offered to take me and Joanne with them. I didn't really feel like going. Not that there's nothing wrong with that. I will go. If anybody wants to pay a ticket, I can go. But <laughs> no, 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 seriously, I was just joking. Actually, I just want you to know this. You know, quite often, tour companies, as a pastor, I've been a pastor for around 22 years. Even in Toronto, when I was pastoring, the tour companies will knock at your door all the time. And they will come and say, hey, we are arranging a Holy Land tour. Pastor and wife goes free as long as you allow us to promote this in your, in your church. So I can exploit this, <laughs> this platform and I can go at your dime. You know, all I need is to arrange a Holy Land tour. It's very easy. Everything is done. 
I'm, I'm, this, the reason I'm, you know, I, I'm not particularly, I, I would go, if somebody invites me, I'll go, but I, I've never felt like going there. And I still remember there was a tour company which specifically they had this caption which they says, go walk in the land where the footprint of Jesus are engraved. Walk in the land where the footprints of Jesus are engraved. Where Walk in the land where Jesus walked. And I was jokingly saying, I thought Jesus said, walk in the land where his footprints are not engraved. That's, that's the great commission, isn't it? Right? She said, go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the end of the earth. Matthew, I got it covered. My footprints are here. Your footprints are not needed here right now. But there is this end of the earth. The promised land for Christians right now is North Korea. That's the promise of Great Commission. Go there where my footprints are not engraved. That's the calling, isn't it? Or am I just making this up in my head? <laughs> because anyway, so this is, don't, don't get me wrong. And there's nothing about Holy Land and all that. But the thing is that at some point we have to realize that there is a deeper spiritual layer into everything we read, particularly in the Old Testament story. And if we miss that point, it will leave us frustrated. Won't, it will confuse us. And the point I'm trying to make is, even though Moses did not cross over to the promised land as we see in the story, I believe Moses was carrying the promised land in his heart all the time. Even in the desert, he was walking in the promised land because you see in that scripture it says, the man whom God knew face to face. That description is only about Moses. Moses spoke to God face to face, not in Israel, not in any promised land, right in the middle of the desert. See, the presence of God can make the desert the promised land, and the absence of God can make the promised land a desert. Now that is very, very important for us to remember. The presence of God, Moses always lived in the promised land. Moses always walked in the promised land. Moses did not have to literally physically cross over to that land or this land because he knew the kingdom of God is beyond any definitions of the geographical territories we have set up. One final twist in this story is in the New Testament, right? And here we see <laughs> Hebrew chapter 11, 25, 26. Basically, the New Testament writer is recollecting the story. This is what it says. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God. This is about Moses, right? By faith, what Moses did. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin considering the reproach of Christ greater richer greater riches than the treasures of Egypt wait a minute wait a minute it says Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater 
riches or treasures than the, sorry, the treasures of Egypt. Moses considered the reproach of who? Christ? Christ who? Oh, I thought this was happening for almost 1,500 years before Christ was even born. Oh, <laughs> Moses knew this story all along. This was not about some Egypt. This was not about some Israel. This is not about some desert. Moses knew Moses' ultimate promised land was the Christ whom he was following. He had a vision of Christ. Like I said, the typology that is built into the Old Testament stories, the Passover lamb and the rock that was following in the New Testament very clearly says that that rock was Christ. And Jesus existed even before Christmas. That, by the way, is our, uh, our Advent teaching series starting next week. There is a story of Christ before Christmas. Many people think that Jesus was born of, on Christmas Day. That is the biggest lie ever sold. Jesus was never born. He always existed. The pre-existence of Jesus was revealed to Moses and Moses considered this magnificent vision of the pre-figured figuring Christ is the greatest riches than the treasures that had the position like Pharaoh's son, being a Pharaoh's daughter's son can offer him. So he was following Christ. Now there comes the true promised land which nobody in the story got. And that is exactly what Moses got. And I'm going to read a final verse here. Matthew chapter 17, 1 to 3. This is the story of transfiguration, the mountain of transfiguration. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Here on the mountain of transfiguration, a few people got the glimpse of who real Jesus was. The real Jesus was not a carpenter. <laughs> the real Jesus was not a hippie who was singing along and you know, peace for everybody. The real Jesus was inside that human court. A few people got a glimpse of that, the real appearance of the transfigured Christ. Guess who is there? Moses. <laughs> and there's another guy called Elijah. It's another time, another story. But to me, if you ask me, this is the true ending of the, the Exodus story. The true climax of the Exodus story, at least as far as Moses is concerned, that right there in the mountain of transfiguration. The Christ whom I was looking forward to see. The Christ whose reproach I gladly bear. I choose rather than the treasures, treasures of Egypt. Here is the Christ. The same God I used to Talk face to face in Mount Horeb, right here in the mountain of transfiguration. I got to see the incarnation, which is the most beautiful thing the world has ever seen. God coming in human flesh to take the reproach of the world 
Moses got to see, only Moses got to see it. Now that, only that is the true promise. The true promised land is the presence of Christ. Can you pray with me? Father God, we live in a world which is bombarded with the ideological warfare surrounding us about the death of Christianity, about wars against Judeo-Christian values. And on the other side, we get frustrated, we get angry, and we get upset because sometimes we set our foundations on physical things, physical people, like senior pastors, like big churches and big buildings and big lands. But Lord, help us to look to the promised land which Abraham looked, the city whose foundation is set by you, the new Jerusalem, the invisible, imperishable kingdom of God, the presence of God which makes it the promised land. Lord, the temptation is so close for us to follow the crowd, not the cloud. Lord, let us not make that mistake. Don't allow us to follow the crowd. But as instable as it seems, as cloudy as it seems, and help us to follow the calling and be nimble and be agile and be spontaneous to walk with the Holy Spirit's guidance in this desert so that we can turn this desert into the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.